from God's Word, again from the Old Testament, this time the first book of Kings and chapter 16. And verse 29, that's on page 410 in the Church Bible. First Kings 16 and verse 29. And this takes us into the 8th century in Israel and the reign of King Ahab. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, that's with the death of Abiram, his firstborn. And with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. And having uttered these words, Elijah then disappears from public view for three years. Let's read now in chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab had called Obadiah, who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab had said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water and to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so that we will not have to kill any livestock. So they divided the land between them to explore it. Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your master, Elijah is here. 
So he said, how have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find you. And now you say, go, tell your master Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid one hundred men of the Lord's prophets, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master Elijah is here, he will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father Sousar, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And uh, with God's help, let's look at uh, verses 17 and 18. It happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father Sousav, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Is that you, troubler of Israel? As it was said, translated in the King James Version, are you the one who troubles Israel? However exactly you translate this from the Hebrew, uh, the words don't actually convey any uncertainty about who is troubling Israel. In fact, these words are meant to be a direct accusation. In other words, <clears throat> I think perhaps the best way of rendering them would be, are you here, troubler of Israel? Now, there's no doubt if you know your history and if you've... Um, followed even the reading itself, there's no doubt that Israel was troubled. To say she was troubled is to say a truth. For three years and more, there has been a famine in the land. Now, sometimes a famine could be used in the Bible to describe a time of relative scarcity and discomfort. For example, the famine that came upon Israel while Joseph was in Egypt uh, was like that. It wasn't a famine that was immediately causing death. But sometimes the famine was like that. It was a, a real dearth upon the land that was taking away life. And this is one of those famines. I suppose the simple proof of that is just a, a little bit um, earlier in the passage from where we are just now, uh, where Elijah went to the home of the widow of Zarephath, and 
you'll remember that she was in the process of preparing what was effectively the last meal for herself and for her son. Very solemn event in the home, uh, eating one last meal before they died. Of course, the Lord turned that situation around. But for now, I'm only mentioning that to demonstrate that this was a severe famine on the land that was visiting households with death. Uh, sad to say, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, Ahab is more concerned with the well-being of his stables than he is with the well-being of his people. He doesn't want any of his own royal livestock to perish, and he sends Obadiah out uh, to find food for his horses. They matter more to him than the people do. Now, it's obvious here when Ahab meets Elijah that Ahab is actually holding Elijah responsible for the famine. He's holding him personally responsible for the famine. In fact, he spent a good part of the previous three years looking for Elijah, even to the point of sending people into other countries to find him. Uh, he has effectively a kind of international search warrant out for him. And even when the rulers of other countries are assuring him that they're not harboring Elijah, he demands an oath of them to state exactly that. That shows you how determined Ahab is to find Elijah because, as I said, he holds him responsible. The fact is, of course, that God has removed Elijah from the public eye. And by removing all his prophets who died, by removing the hundred prophets who were hid 50 to a cave by Obadiah, and now at last removing Elijah, the fact is that God was removing the word of God from proclamation in Israel. Now that is a solemn event. I mean, who would have thought that the covenanted land of Israel would reach a point where there were no official spokespersons for the Lord pro proclaiming his own word? Who would have thought that? But then again, who would have thought this? Who would have thought it even a few weeks ago that the churches of the land in Scotland, a covenanted land too, which covenanted herself to the Lord, who would have thought that the pulpits would be silenced? It's a remarkable thing. God was speaking to Israel by not speaking to Israel. And certainly God is speaking to our nation by not speaking to the nation. Sad to say, there are many pulpits that we are glad to see closed. There are pulpits, too, that we are sad to see closed. But the fact is that, by and large, God has removed his spokespersons from this nation, too. Maybe that is a precursor to a famine of the word of God, which, I say, which Amos spoke about in the eighth chapter, which is the most grievous famine. I mean, we may think of a famine like this being grievous, and it is. But is it not more grievous to have a, a famine of the word of God, where God is not even speaking into the situation or giving any light? But God removed Elijah, and he removed the prophets. But here, all of a sudden, after three years, Elijah reappears. And uh, Ahab can't wait to make this accusation to his face. Here you are, he says, the troubler of Israel. I want us to look just for a while at Ahab's accusation 
and Elijah's response to it. I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have. Ahab's accusation and Elijah's response. Now, let's take Ahab's accusation first. Now, to you and to me, it seems a very unreasonable accusation to accuse a mere man of bringing a famine upon a land. And if we know our facts, it is an unreasonable accusation. But the fact is that it's not as unreasonable an accusation as we might think it is. Ahab has some grounds for saying that. First of all, it is a fact that Elijah announced the famine. Now, that doesn't make him responsible for it. But nonetheless, the fact is that one day Ahab was sitting in his palace and he is suddenly confronted by a man who, as far as we know, he had never seen before, who announces that a famine was coming. Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. These words are making plain that he received his commission from God and that he's delivering this commission from God. But nonetheless, that's not how Ahab really sees it. As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So Elijah announces it. But more than that, Elijah makes plain in the way that he announces it that he is personally involved in the coming of the famine and that he'll be involved in the going of the famine. Before whom I stand, he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So my word is involved in the famine coming, and my word is involved in the famine going. It won't leave, Elijah says, until I say so. More solemnly, although Ahab doesn't know this, Elijah had actually prayed for this famine. Now, in the, in the epistle of James in the New Testament, we're familiar with the words that tell us that Elijah prayed for rain. He prayed earnestly for rain, and God sent rain. But the same verse also makes, through that, makes clear that Elijah prayed for famine, and that God sent the famine. Now, I don't know if God announced the famine to Elijah before Elijah prayed for it. Um, take, for example, the, the rain that came at the end of the famine. We're told that God announced to Elijah that he was going to send rain upon the earth. And we're told a little later that Elijah prayed earnestly for that rain to come. You'll remember when he prayed earnestly seven times until he saw in the heavens just a little cloud the size of a man's hand, which was a token of coming rain. So he prayed for that rain to come, although prior to it the Lord had said he was going to send rain. Now, of course, to the unbeliever, uh, that sounds a strange thing. You may say, uh, well, why pray for something that God has actually promised? But by and large, that is what we do in life. We pray for what God has promised. And the fact that God has promised something doesn't discourage our prayer for it. It actually quickens and encourages our prayer. 
if, if we sense that God has spoken something, that God is going to do something, well, we pray it into operation because it's just God's way to make us fellow laborers with himself. He does nothing with respect in these things without involving his people and involving their prayers. We become fellow workers with God. Um, so that is true. But it's still a solemn fact that even if God had said to Elijah, I am going to send a famine, it is still a solemn fact that Elijah prayed for that famine to come. He prayed for it to come. What's more, and I say this with reverence and with carefulness, there's a sense, a sense in which Elijah would have welcomed it. Not for the pain it brought anybody. Um, he was keen to alleviate that grief, and I'm sure he was very glad to be the means of life for the widow and for her son. But Elijah welcomed a famine in the sense that it showed God active in the land still. This was one of Elijah's concerns. In fact, just a, a short while afterwards, when they gather on Mount Carmel, when Elijah pleads for the fire to, fire to fall from heaven, one of his petitions effectively is this, that they might know that there is a God in Israel. That was his concern. He was so conscious of the people behaving as though there was no God, as though their history was unreal, and as though everything God had said and done didn't matter anything, or it had been legend or myth or just the mere words of men. And he wanted the people to know through the fire that there was a God in Israel. Now, that would be the same motivation when he prayed for a famine to come. Because it was just a stark fact that God had promised Israel from the beginning that if she were to be disobedient as a nation, that he would send a famine upon them. And uh, it seems rather strange for the nation to be doing quite well when it is falling into sin. And it was at this time. It was the only time of stability pretty much in the northern kingdom, except for the reign of Jeroboam II. Omri himself, Ahab's father, was such a powerful king that he's recorded pretty much everywhere in secular history. Ahab is not, interestingly, because Ahab's Omri was a well-known military general and so on. But Ahab himself reigned for 22 years. There was wealth. There was a good economy, which is what which is all that matters to some people. People were doing well, but the sin was abounding in the land. We'll see that in a minute. And for a prophet of God, that was difficult to understand, especially when God had said that things would be otherwise. If God said, I will visit you with a famine, well, people were liable to conclude if there's no famine, if there's no judgment, well, God is not displeased. Um, I heard something like this just not, not too long ago um, on the radio when somebody was uh, speaking about doing certain things. The person said, look, we legalized uh, gay marriage and the sky didn't fall on our heads. That's the same kind of thing. When you hear that, you're grieved because you, you know what the Lord feels concerning this evil. But sometimes he doesn't show his displeasure, and we wonder that he doesn't show his displeasure. 
Ahab can say, well, I built a temple of Baal. I've incorporated the worship of Baal into the worship of Jehovah. And I've still got a booming economy. So for Elijah, it was a question of God's faithfulness. Is he displeased with sin? Or is he not displeased with sin? It's not just a question of God's faithfulness. It's almost a question of God's reality. (laughs) Is he really there? That they might know there was a God in Israel. It wouldn't surprise me if Elijah had prayed for the famine before God announced it was coming. Just as I'm quite sure that Elijah prayed for rain before God said the rain's coming. Because he wanted God to show himself. But as far as Ahab is concerned, all these things add up to the famine being Elijah's fault. It's the fault of the man of God that everything's gone wrong. It always is. Nothing seems to change like that. The world sees Christians as troublemakers, and the more faithful Christians are, the more they're seen as troublemakers. If a minister or an elder highlights a sin, well, they're troublemakers. If they call a church to faithfulness, they're making trouble in the church. One of the charges officially brought against Christ before the Sanhedrin was that he stirred up the people. Paul and Silas, were told, are troubling this city. In Thessalonica, the apostles were introduced as people who were turning the world upside down. And that's not in a good way. And Amos the prophet was told by an official delegation of the people in Israel that the land could not tolerate his prophecies. In fact, what they said was very interesting. They said to Amos, go down to Judah with that stuff. They can listen to that there, but the land will not bear your words here. In other words, Amos is a troublemaker. So the world will always shoot the messengers. And as far as Ahab is concerned, Elijah is the trouble. But there is a problem here, and we have to be honest about it. Is it not true to say that God is troubling Israel? Elijah's response was quite different. I mean, Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, Ahab, and your father's house. But could we not come back and say, well, maybe you're not troubling Israel, Elijah, but God is. Is that true? Is God troubling Israel? Well, yes, God was troubling Israel because his judgments are designed to be troublesome. And when he sends them, even on his own people, they are troubles, and they are troubles from God. This expression, troubling Israel, I think only appears one other time in Scripture. It appears when um, Israel was surprisingly defeated at Ai. And um, because God had promised them conquest of the land, there was an inquest. What was happening when so many of them had died at Ai and they couldn't defeat Ai? They couldn't seize the city. And uh, it was made plain to Israel that the problem lay with a man called Achan, who had disregarded God's commandments and coveted some of the spoil that he had seen in the city took it for himself, the goodly or the beautiful Babylonian garments, which costed so much money, and the silver and so on. You remember how he hid it 
underneath his own tent. Now God, in his own way, brought to light what Achan had done. But before Achan was judged there and then by God, you'll remember that Joshua said to him, Why have you troubled Israel? God will trouble you today. Now notice both expressions. It's the same Hebrew word for trouble, by the way, as we have here in 1 Kings 18. Why have you troubled Israel? God today will trouble you. And so when judgment fell upon Achan, God was troubling Achan. He was troubling Achan. So in the famine, it is right to say that God was troubling Israel. But instead of moaning and complaining about it, if Ahab had any sense, just as if we had sense, we would be asking, why is God troubling us? Why is God troubling us with a virus? Why is God troubling us with a disease, an international disease, a disease that seems to be worsening and not getting better? But Ahab is not asking why. He just gets the easy, superficial answer. You'll notice he doesn't examine himself. He doesn't say, what part have I got to play in what's going on? Neither does he call the nation to consider what's going on. As far as he's concerned, he knows the answer, and it's the man of God. If he did really inquire, if he spiritually inquired and humbled himself, he'd have discovered that the real trouble in Israel is not the trouble that God was sending. It's the trouble that man was creating. Here you are, troubler of Israel. Who's troubling Israel? What is the trouble in Israel? What is Israel's problem? What is Israel's trouble? Is the famine Israel's trouble? Or is something else Israel's trouble? That really takes us back to where we started ourselves. What's our trouble today? Is it the coronavirus? Or is, or is it the thing that's caused the coronavirus? God's judgment upon us is not our trouble. Our trouble is what brought it about in the first place. The coronavirus is causing panic. It's causing fear. I mean, you can almost see it in people. But nobody's panicking or fearful about the things that caused it. In fact, people aren't even asking what's caused it except looking for scientific causes. The fact is that the coronavirus can destroy your body. But the sins that brought it about will destroy your body and soul in hell. That's what indu should induce fear and that's what should induce panic. There's a sense even in which our own call to humiliation and prayer, right and proper as it is. And right and proper as it is for it to call upon God to remove this trouble from us. <laughs> should also call for a cessation. It does, really, but a call for a cessation for the things that have caused the trouble. Why call for humiliation and prayer when God troubles us? We should, yes, and we have. But why should we not also call for humiliation and prayer when we are troubling God and when our sins are bringing trouble on the land? Our humiliation and prayer should really stem from what's happened to marriage, to the sanctity of life, to the unborn, to boys and girls who are being 
abused into ch changing sex before they even know really who they are. That's the cause for humiliation and prayer, not the coronavirus. I mean, when I look around Glasgow, and when you look around Glasgow, the coronavirus is a small thing compared to what goes on day after day and night after night, which should bring my day of humiliation and prayer and yours. Why is it that we are only grieved when God troubles the land? Why are we not grieved at what's caused God to trouble the land? That is sadly a symptom of the problem. One of the reasons that God has troubled this land with the virus is because of us. The churches being closed are not just a judgment on the world. They are a judgment upon the churches themselves. No doubt about that. We haven't grieved as we ought for the afflictions of Joseph. I mean, God rebuked Israel for drinking wine in bowlfuls while Joseph was suffering. I think that just describes Zion and people being at ease in Zion. So as far as Ahab is concerned, Elijah is the problem. Now, Elijah's response. Let's just look at that for a little while too. Verse 18 here, 1 Kings 18, verse 18. Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. It's a very simple response. The cause of this trouble, he says, is you and your father's house. He doesn't mean Ahab alone. He means the royal family, really. He's drawing attention to the royal family, not simply as a royal family, but as the rulers or the government. So it's the government's problem, primarily. Now, if you read scripture carefully, you'll notice that since Ahab came to the throne, particularly, there was a sea change in Israel. Um, as though, the Bible says, as though it was not enough to have the sin of Jeroboam. Now, what Jeroboam had done was he had corrupted the worship of God. That's what he had done. He had introduced practices into the worship which ought not to have been there. As though that was not enough, he says, Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of the Phoenician king. Now, you can be sure, that's a political move, of course, but it's also an economic move. I mean, the Tyre and Sidon were well-known trading cities, very well-known trading cities, and to intermarry into the Phoenician royal family was an economic boon. It was like a, the best trade deal that you could negotiate. And that's, of course, what mattered. That's what mattered, of course. What happened with it was that Jezebel became the new power behind the Israelite throne. And that ended up with Ahab coming to be known as the most wicked of all the kings. And we're told later on in chapter 21 that he sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. I think that impression pretty that um, these words are designed to give the impression that at some point he was perhaps resisting that wickedness. And it's interesting Sometimes forgotten, but at one point Ahab humbled himself before God and averted a judgment from God. So he seemed to have that much of a conscience. But the fact is that Jezebel so provoked him that he provoked the Lord and sold himself to do wickedness. 
And what he did, you see, and this is what's so interesting for ourselves today. You may wonder, well, what is it about today? Well, what Ahab did was he took Israel beyond a tipping point, which he had not gone beyond before, which provoked national judgment from God. Now, God judges nations as he judges individuals and peoples and families and congregations. But this provoked a national judgment. I mean, there were lots of evils in Israel anyway that God would judge in his own time and in his own way. But sometimes when things become an affront and a national affront, it provokes God into national chastisements. What was it Ahab had done? Well, as well as allowing the corruption of Jehovah worship, he, he took that a stage further. He began to tolerate and to promote idolatry. The servants of Baal, uh, people who worshipped him, were promoted into government in the land, and they were pulling policy strings in God's covenanted land. A temple for Baal was built in Samaria. We, we think nothing of it now. We, we think nothing of it when the temples are built to false gods, and temples representing false religions. They're built, they're visible, they're prominent in the skyline. We're used to it, and we think it doesn't matter to God in this covenanted land. So he promoted idolatry. Along with that, he turned towards persecuting God's people. The true prophets began to disappear. You know what it was like in communist Russia and in the Eastern European countries? People would just disappear. People turned up at the door, took someone out, and they just weren't seen again. The prophets were disappearing. Elijah tells us that they were slain. Obadiah here tells us too that they were slain. There was a hundred left, which Obadiah took and hid in caves. And the false Jehovah prophets were actually tolerated at court for the sake of the people. I mean, you have, to, you have to be a kind of idiot as a ruler not to recognize that you have to bring the people to some extent along with you. So there were around 400 prophets of Jehovah who were tolerated at court. You had 400 prophets of Asherah, you had 450 prophets of Baal, and you had 400 spineless prophets of Jehovah who were that in name only. They were... They would have the worship, they would call upon the name of the Lord, and they were allowed to call upon the name of the Lord on the king's terms. We're used to such people. The church is weary, or the true church is weary of such people. Um, of course, the less faithful Israelites were content with this situation. There was, a, there was a sham of our religion in Jehovah's name. Um, Elijah was so depressed about the situation that he felt there was nobody left, actually, in Israel. Unknown to him, there were 7,000 families. I, I think that would be a reference to families that had not bowed the knee to Baal. They were remaining apart. They were worshipping at home. Of course, to some extent, they were invisible. But what else? What were they supposed to be? Uh, how, how else were they supposed to live? They couldn't turn up to the Jehovah worship that was going on, just cheek by jowl with the Baal worship. They couldn't identify with these false prophets anymore. Uh, today, people say, well, unity, 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 unity is all that matters. I mean, the last thing you want to do is break up a church. 
No, the last thing you want to do is have a church that is so compromised and mixed that it doesn't preach the word of God properly. That's the last thing you want. Israel's situation would not have been helped by all these people just mixing together. And last of all, with that persecution of God's people, there was the, what I could only call, an explicit provocation of God that had come into the culture. An explicit provocation of God. We're told, just, just notice this, by the way, if you turn back to um, the end of chapter 16, you have an incident that appears to be, well, almost irrelevant or certainly innocuous. Why mention it? In verse 33, in verse 32, sorry, chapter 16 and verse 32, we're told that Ahab set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before. And then we have this. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Why mention that? Well, because in all the backsliding and in all the trouble that had taken place in Israel up till now, nobody had even tried to rebuild Jericho. A curse had been placed years ago upon the person who would try to rebuild it. That curse was pronounced by Joshua. And for these hundreds of years since, nobody tried to rebuild it until Ahab came to the throne. And here you've got this man who tries to rebuild it. And what's more, the specific curse that Joshua pronounced fell upon him. When he started to rebuild it, his oldest son died. And when he finished the rebuilding process, his youngest son died. But the point here is that nothing changed. It's a case of, oh, well, there's a death in the family. And, oh, well, there's another death in the family. And isn't it sad that there's another death in the family? And there's a complete failure to trace what has happened to the judgment that God had pronounced upon such behavior. Defiance. Absolute defiance of God. None of it slowed Ahab down. I mean, the building project at Jericho was something that interested him because Jericho itself was a strategically placed city. And he gave authority for someone to do what no one had done before him. And he dares to say that Elijah is troubling the country. And all these things, all these things have manifested themselves in our generation in the last 40 to 50 years. We have provoked God. We have not just disobeyed God, but we have followed the bales. We've turned a corner. We've done things nationally that call the judgment of God upon us. The corruption of God's worship over the last 50 and 60 years, I've said enough about that. I haven't said enough, but I've said enough recently about it. I don't need to elaborate on it. At best, it's embarrassing. That's worse. At worst, sometimes it's just utterly blasphemous. The toleration and promotion of idolatry and false religion. 
All faiths are spoken of in an equal footing. Her Majesty the Queen can't say something about God with incorporating every single faith into what she says about God. Unbelievers and believers in false religions are in places of power in the land, in places of authority. God is presented as an idea, and even as an idea, he's only on an equal footing with others, even in the curricula in the schools. And even people in authority, when they claim that this is, or they say, well, this is a Christian country, they only mean that it's Christian by culture, in the way in which a black pudding is cultural to a certain place, or a, or a game of shinty, or, or a glass of whiskey. Well, Christianity is our particular form of cultural religion. Idolatry is promoted. Promoted. And then there's the persecution of God's people. That has appeared. There's always a sense in which the world finds the Christian strange. There's a sense maybe in which the world might stand off a Christian or not join with a Christian. But that's very different from silencing street preachers. It's different from taking the Christian voice out of the public square. It's different from criminalizing now who want Christians who want to raise their children in a biblical way. Criminalizing them. And there's the outright provocation. I can think of nothing more provoking to God than promoting an LGBTQ plus alphabet. I don't know all the letters. I'm not even sure I've got them in the right order. Promoting that ideology under the banner of a rainbow flag. A rainbow. A rainbow is like wine and sacrament. It's like water in baptism. It is a seal of a covenant. A covenant that God made with the earth. That, that was essentially saying that God would preserve the earth now from severe judgment, from cataclysmic, global, flood-like judgment. He would preserve the earth from that until the final day of judgment would come. So when the rainbow appears, it is saying that in spite of sin, God is still long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And instead of worshipping when we see the color of the rainbow, there's the colors of the rainbow going through our streets as a kind of banner and a standard for those who are flying in the face of God. Marriage brought nothing by the courts and the governments of the land. Children being encouraged to think if they're boys that they may be girls and if they're girls that they may be boys. I call that child abuse. But if I say that, I'm off the airwaves. Do you think we can behave like that and not be troubled? Do you think we can trouble God and trouble the land and not be troubled by God for these things? The amazing thing to me is not that the coronavirus has come, it's that it's taking so long. But there is a rationale as to exactly why it has come now and destroyed every sin and amusement in the land. There's provocation. Provocation. And unless we repent, it's only the beginning of woes. I mean, Isaiah said to Judah, speaking for God, he said, why should you be struck anymore? 
He says, your whole body from top to bottom is black and blue, effectively. He doesn't mean there with the disease of sin. He means with chastisement. He said, I've struck you. I've struck you, but why should I strike you anymore? In other words, why should I not cease chastising you and just judge you altogether? Just quickly in conclusion, what is God calling us to do? Well, first of all, we need to recognize God's voice. As Micah the prophet says, hear the rod and the one who has appointed it. It is a rod. Listen to it. Listen to the rod's message. It is God's voice, the coronavirus. No doubt about that. It is God's voice. We've also got to recognize, as well as recognizing God's voice, we have to recognize God's message. It is a call to repentance. Like I said, in our day of humiliation and prayer, rightly so, we pray for the removal of the scourge, but pray for the removal of the sin that brought it. What use would it be for the scourge to disappear and nobody to have changed their lives? What use? What use is that? But as well as that, you're to recognize God's mercy. The prophet famously said, and we all quote it, we quote it so often in our prayers, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. I saw yesterday on the news uh, some children putting rainbows on windows. And uh, they were doing this as a sign of hope. And I thought to myself that that's the first rainbow I'd seen made by man for a long time that was at least close to what God was saying with the original rainbow. Hope. The rainbow tells us that God is long-suffering and slow to wrath and plenteous in mercy. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, when Joab, um, when Joel the prophet was prophesying, God had sent a plague of locusts in the land, three waves of locusts that brought the, the land to its knees, just devastated the land. And it says this in Joel 2 and um, in verse 11, the Lord gives voice before his army. Now, his army here is the locusts. Notice that they're called God's army because it's not an indisciplined bunch of insects. It's, it's a way of telling us that God is sending them out. He knows each one of them. They all have their place. He's sending out his army. The, great, the day of the Lord is great and terrible, and who can endure it? Well, you know, when people in those days saw a thick swarm of locusts, it was a disaster in the land. Now, therefore, says the Lord, and this is the text actually quoted by our church in the call to humiliation and fasting and prayer. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Not just an outward thing. Turn. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. And he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent 
and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. I think the meaning there is that when the locusts have done their damage, that they leave, and they leave sufficient to present a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord. In other words, that the land awakens to worship, but it doesn't just seek food for itself. It, it seeks the worship of God above everything else because the disappearance of that is the worst thing of all. Like I said before, the biggest tragedy today is not the full hospitals, it's the empty churches. The empty churches. Who knows that the Lord will not turn? And if, if we will turn, then the Lord will turn too. May he bless these thoughts on his word. Let's uh, sing in conclusion. <clears throat> in Psalm 90, on page 349 in your psalm book. Page 349. At verse 8. Our sins, thou and iniquities, dust in thy presence place, and setst our secret faults before the brightness of thy face. Now, this is the kind of thing that's happening just now, because when our sins and iniquities are being placed in God's presence, that means that God's dealing with them. They're not lying under, uh, they're not remaining hidden, but God says it's time to deal with it, even our secret faults. For in thine anger, all our days do pass on to an end. You see, they're conscious that they're living in God's chastisement. And as a tale that hath been told, so we our years do spend. Three years and ten do sum up our days and years we see, or if by reason of more strength in some fourscore they be, yet doth the strength of such old men but grief and labor prove, for it is soon cut off and we fly hence and soon remove. Who knows the power of thy wrath? According to thy fear, so is thy wrath. He cannot be feared more than he needs to be feared. Lord, teach thou us our end in mind to bear. Now, this is a chastisement doing its work, you see. When it starts this kind of prayer, when it produces this kind of prayer, Lord, teach thou us our end in mind to bear. And so to count our days that we our hearts may still apply to learn thy wisdom and thy truth, that we may live thereby. Let's sing the six stanzas, eight to twelve, we stand to sing.
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.